Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is Michael Reichelson, principal of the law offices of Michael H. Reichelson. He and his firm specialise in collections and complex commercial litigation and has represented both debtors and creditors throughout his career. On today's show, Michael shares with us an extraordinary case involving a framed client, fraudulent claims and apparently a truck full of Picassos. Um, the question I'd like to start with is, what's one thing that you wish they taught in law school that you've you've learnt? Uh, the first thing is, you know, how to really prepare a case uh, to get it up for ready for trial. You know, you do a lot of book study and you do the uh, Socratic method where you answer questions from, you know, the professors. But at the end of the day, you really need to know how to ask questions and put pen to paper and really understand what the end game is at a trial. Um, the second thing is they don't really teach you the business of law. I think um, everybody has a romantic idea that law is uh, arguing cases in front of the Supreme Court of the United States and talking about highfalutin theories and uh, protecting people's rights. But in reality, it's about billing and dollars and cents when it comes down to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my second question to you would be, um, what do you feel is the sort of most important skill? And I guess you've touched on this here, but but just to sort of um, clarify on it, like uh, what do you think is if you could single out one skill in being a successful lawyer, what would you what would you say is that skill? Um, you've got to really think about real world impact of the questions you're asking people. How is this question and deposition going to be used at trial? It's just not to have wasted space. You have to think ahead and make sure it, the questions you're asking witnesses or other parties in, a, let's say, a deposition, um, how that will be used at trial. Just don't go through some rote um, conversation with a witness when you're deposing them. Make sure that you understand the end game and where you're going with that. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and finally, what do you think separates your particular area of, of practice in law versus, well, any, any other field of law that you'd care to mention? What, what is it that you think that separates your work from, from other fields? Well, I'm a litigator, you know, so I'm trying cases and I've tried a lot of cases. Uh, I've tried um, jury trials, I've tried arbitrations, and I've tried non-jury trials in front of a judge without a jury. And uh, I really understand how the process works and how to get a case position for either a future settlement or how to make it be successful at trial to the extent you define success. If that's to lower the damages, then I understand that. If it's to win the case, you know, I understand that. Perfect. Thank you. Well, um, great start. So I'd, I'd like to just really move on to, to hear this story that you, you brought to share. So it, b it begins with... The, the fact that you were representing one of the wealthiest people in, in the United States, correct? Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to change the story. I thought about oh, it. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, because I thought uh, a lot of younger attorneys may be listening to this. Um, and it really goes back to the real first case where I was involved in the trial preparation and the actual trial. Um, I was second chair on a case about uh, 25 years ago. Uh, my client uh, was a real estate broker and was sued by their, their own client. What happened was uh, this uh, couple, an odd couple, owned a huge warehouse in the San Pedro area, which is a seaside area in uh, southern Los Angeles County. And uh, it was an old warehouse, probably about 20, 30 
thousand square feet and it had a bunch of junk in it and they were trying to sell the warehouse and my client who was an elderly real estate agent uh, was assisting them in the sale so my client was kind of set up where these um, grifters set up a um, viewing of the property uh, through my client and my client brought um, the grifters to the property and during the course of the showing of this property during the middle of the day one of the grifters there's three of them and they're really criminals at the end of the day they went to the back of the warehouse and they surreptitiously unlocked the back door so later that evening they came back to the property and they uh, rampaged through it and stole a bunch of stuff in the property so the owners of the warehouse who owned all the junk that was in the property sued my client for negligently showing the property and allowing these grifters in in the first place and allowing them to go to the back of the um, uh, warehouse and unlock this door surreptitiously that they were later allowed to go in so they ended up suing my client on the face of it it would look or appear to be that she was negligent because she showed the property and she shouldn't allow these people to roam through the property uh, um, without accompanying them and they shouldn't she shouldn't allow them to unlock the back door but during the course of um, this um, lawsuit these people the, the owners of the warehouse this odd married couple it was almost like a mother-son uh, relationship um, they they overstated their claim they went to the police and filed a police report for someone breaking in the warehouse and they had to do an itemization of their claim and in that itemization they put that they owned Picasso's, Latrec's, antique uh, trains, all this esoteric or, you know, stuff and all these quote-unquote fancy paintings. The police report must have been you know, 10 pages long. They really shot for the moon and they thought that this was a free ride because my client she was represented by an insurance company or she had insurance for this type of a loss and uh, they thought that they were just going to make this big claim through this lawsuit and they weren't going to have to support it so there were still some items left in the warehouse um, that they claimed were similar type items to the ones that they already lost so we required them through the law to produce these items to show us and this guy shows up in this rickety flatbed truck and he supposedly in the back has the Picassos that weren't stolen um, and the Latrex and uh, some Limoges um, China so we hired a bunch of experts fine art experts uh, antique train experts and people to look at this stuff and tell us whether or not you know this was really a Picasso or a Latrex or whatever so they show up in this rickety pickup truck which is our first indication that this is a grift right and they uh, take out these um, canvases, kind of like painting canvases, uh, and in the middle of a parking lot, they start unloading the back of this pickup truck with all this junk. So the fine art expert looked at this quote-unquote Picasso, and it was a print, obviously. And she showed me how to differentiate an original painting from a print, because in a print, when the print presses against the paper, it's like, uh, a uh, sponge and the water squirts out the side so you could see on the canvas of this Picasso the marks of the paint going out the side 
which clearly showed that it was being pressed down rather than being original painting. But they were, they were claiming to our face that this was original stuff. And the guy brought the um, antique trains that he claimed were uh, 100 years old. We had our train expert in this parking lot, and he's like, these are like things you would buy at Toys R Us. So anyway, you know, the point is that um, one is, um, you know, was our client wrong in allowing them to walk around the warehouse? The grifters who stole the property and allowing uh, them to uh, go to the back and unlock the property? Yeah, she was probably wrong. What happened was there was three people. They intentionally split up, and she could only follow one at a time. They knew what they were doing. But the problem, or the rub is, is that the plaintiff, in our case, the client of my client, uh, they shot for the moon. And by overplaying their hand, uh, and it was tried in front of a jury, uh, the jury just laughed at them. And we made fools of them by showing that these quote-unquote Latrecs and these uh, trains and the, the, <laughs> the Limoges China, which didn't actually come from Limoges, I think it came from Kmart or Walmart, was nonsense. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing is, and this was kind of interesting, we didn't know this uh, going, into the, or going into the trial. Uh, there's an, an adage that you learn in law school is don't ask a question at trial unless you know the answer. Um, so if you have a witness on the stand, unless you know the answer, don't ask them the question. So the plaintiff's attorney asked my client if there was anybody with her. In other words, another agent or family member or whatever, because she knew that there was going to be more than one person to look at the warehouse. And my client said, yes, my son was in my car and he was waiting in the parking lot for me. And then the plaintiff's attorney asked my client and said, well, how come your son did not come into the warehouse and at least help you out in watching these people. And my client said, well, my son is suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease and he can't get out of the car. And so what you had there is the plaintiff's attorney asked a question he didn't know the answer to. He thought he had gotcha, you know. But in reality, um, it created sympathy, obviously, because here was my elderly client who's 70 years old and the jury now knows that she has a disabled son with Lou Gehrig's disease. So that's kind of the two main points out of that is don't shoot for the moon. You know, be honest with these claims. And the second one is don't ask a question unless you know the answer to it. That's that's wonderful. I love that. I, I wonder what what stage of your career was this? Was this sort of early, mid, recent? No, it's about I was two two to three years out of law school. So I was uh, working with a senior partner in the law firm. It's all public records. His name's Bill Slaughter. Uh, he's a great attorney, and he, he really taught me that case, really taught me how to prepare a case for trial. I did all the depositions. I did all the hiring of the expert witnesses, um, did all the trial documents. I uh, cross-examined their expert during trial. Um, that, that's another funny story is... Um, so they hired a real estate expert, and we hired a real estate expert. And you don't want, you want an expert to be authentic when they're on the stand. Uh, and um, uh, their real estate expert, I asked him, I said, you just, you, you testify at trial. That's how you make your, make your living, correct? And he said, no, 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 I'm a, I'm in, I'm real estate. I'm a real estate maker, you know, dealer, realer, dealer, broker, whatever. I said, well, what's, what's your, this is right at the beginning of websites and the internet, too. I said, well, what's your, what's your website name? And his website, the URL was www.expertwitness.com. 
you know, so it kind of just told you right there that this is how he makes his living. And then you lose credibility. You should have been honest in the first place, right? So, so we ended up winning that case. The jury found uh, our clients not liable. It was a civil case. And we ended up getting an award from the judge for about $250,000 for attorney's fees. Um, so we, we flipped it on them. We got $250,000 for attorney's fees. And here's the funny thing is the couple, I wish I remembered their name, they ended up filing bankruptcy because we now had a judgment against them for $250,000, which was 20 years ago. So it was pretty significant. And in bankruptcy, you need to identify all of the assets, all your property that you own on schedules under penalty of perjury. So on their schedules, they put that they barely owned anything. So we contacted the bankruptcy trustee and we gave them that 10-page uh, document that showed that they owned Latrex and Dollies and Picassos and said these people identified nothing on their paperwork. Well, they gave this to the police under penalty of perjury also about you know a year earlier showing that they owed millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff. So their bankruptcy ended up getting thrown out too, you know. Wow, what goes around comes around. That's uh, that's really something. Was it your first uh, case in front of a jury? Now that case, that was the first one in front of a jury. That was the, that was the first case I saw from beginning to end uh, in terms of you know, really preparing it for trial, selecting the jury. You know, one of the things you learn is if you have a strong case, you don't care who's on the jury because the idea is you could pick someone who's barely breathing and they'd still find in your favor. So when we went into selecting the jury, uh, the plaintiff's attorney, we were the defense attorney, the plaintiff's attorney was very particular about who he got onto the jury. And when it came to our turn to either knock people off the jury or select people or however you want to term it, uh, we just said, no, we're good with whoever's on the jury. And it portrayed a, uh, a bit of confidence and strength to the jury. So the game starts even before you know the opening statement. It starts with that selection of the jury. What a story. If it wasn't public record, you'd be forgiven for thinking that was the plot of a comedy. My thanks to Michael for sharing his fantastic story today. Um, if you want to find out more about Michael and his firm, you can find uh, all their links in the show notes at thatonecase.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I really would appreciate you sharing it with someone else you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to subscribe and to listen are at thatonecase.com. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you again next time uh, as Jody Morales tells us the story of That One Case.